0: my god how could he do that Are i you want on to to- what charles darwin
2: welcome everybody back into nerd sesh as always i'm carson grabber and alongside me is logan camden and today We're going to be giving you all our first impressions from the Conference Finals. Now, out West, we're a little bit beyond first impressions, really, because we're three games deep. But you know what? Since we've only seen one game of Hawks-Bucks, we're still going to be calling it that. And what we saw tonight in the Western Conference Finals was the Clippers retaliate in Game 3, finally pick up a win in CP's return to the court. Really, the Suns just didn't have it going tonight. Their two-star guys were pretty consistently off for the duration of this one. But, Logan, what are some of your initial impressions from this series? What have been some of the keys to getting where we are today, and what are some of the keys going forward? Well, I'd say
1: uh, starting with this game, I think you're exactly right about D-Book and CP3. Um, I mean, I thought the biggest issue was just they tried to do a little too much by themselves. They just got away from that fluid offense. D-Book trying to get into the lane guys are getting up in his face making shots tough and he missed a couple um that he should have knocked down in the mid-range cp3 a little more because they continued to get that switch on zubach all game long and I, it's the one they want shots just weren't falling tonight like i didn't think mm-hmm. that the suns did really anything wrong it's just they just went cold for a couple stretches um another big thing in this game i saw bridges uh cam johnson tory craig even they all just kind of got a little hesitant at shooting three balls here uh, in the third quarter, man. They kept trying to pump fake drive into the lane, and Marcus Morris and Zubach were doing a hell of a job there, uh, bodying guys, making life hard, especially Zubach. I want to give him a lot of credit. was really dangerous off the roll tonight, Um uh, getting up in guys' faces on defense, playing a big part off the glass. Uh Mm-hmm. I don't know, man, and the Clippers didn't really do anything special tonight, man. They were pretty formulaic. It just ended up working, and that's the that's the benefit, man. Like, I trust the Clippers' offense to continuously generate reliable uh, If It's Zubac on the inside off the short roll when George can get three guys to roll on him or threes to fall. Um, the Clippers just were a little more consistent offensively tonight, and uh, Zubac did a really good job of limiting DeAndre Ayton. Um I don't know though, like this series has been so close each and every game, man. It's Mm -hmm. I expect this to go down to the wire, uh, seven
2: games. Really? You think it's still going seven? Interesting. I think the clips have obviously proven that they can be competitive game in, game out in this series, as I would say I expected for the most part. And what's interesting is they've done that in spite of the fact that we haven't seen that collective... Shooting explosion from them from beyond the arc that maybe you would expect. They won this game with 12 made threes. It was a slow, grinded out kind of contest. But this is kind of the definition of a fluky win. If you're going to look at book and CP going a combined 10 for 40, and you're not winning that game in blowout fashion, if you're the Suns, I think you shrug that off and say, you know what, this is never going to happen again. And I think you mentioned it for CP. He was getting to his spots, shots just weren't really falling. I think for Book, we definitely saw him struggle a little bit more. I think that he got to his spots in some instances, and part of it is his game is predicated on tough shot making, on knocking down those jumpers from the mid-range as is CPs, and so eventually, sometimes, those shots just aren't going to fall, right? Neither of these guys have the kind of bag to where If those shots aren't falling, they're going to get to the line 15 times in the game. For the most part, Book can do it occasionally. CP, not really at all, and so that was part of it, is they both just had off-shooting nights, but... I thought Pat Bev played some of the best defense I have seen from him in a very, very long time. And look, I'm not a Pat Bev guy. For the most part, I tend to agree with Russell Westbrook's quote about how he's just running around tricking people into thinking he's playing defense. But man, he had active hands last night. He was physical, but without fouling for a majority of this game. His feet were remarkable. His intensity did not drop off for a moment. I mean, Terrence Mann had a couple really good possessions as well. Had that one just fantastic block on a book mid-range pull-up those dudes were hounding him all game I don't expect him to continue to struggle like this but this is consecutive games in which again he has not had the easy stuff and that's a testament to the perimeter defense of the Clippers but can they replicate this formula no because book and CP are not going to shoot 10 of 40 combined again ever
1: yeah and Pat Bev was also getting into passing lanes too man poking balls loose he was a hound out there tonight um I and mean, while you bring up Terrence, man, too, what a run out of the third quarter, uh, out of the half, mm-hmm. man. I mean, just a couple fast-break buckets, really. Uh, he was in gr- uh, great positioning uh, off of that Zubach miss to get that put-back uh, layup. And while you're at it, dude,
2: playoff hero Reggie Jackson showed up once again tonight, man. That man is clutch. Yeah. It's unbelievable. His faith in himself to create a shot, just makes me believe through the screen that he's going to make every one. And for the most part, he does, man. Tough mid-range pull-ups, floaters, anything from beyond the arc. I'm convinced this cash. Like, he has been a hero for this team. There was no other word. They needed that second creator so desperately, and they have a guy who they can rely on to get 20 a night to drive and kick. I mean, he had a beautiful read as a passer as well in this one where mid-air he decided that he was going to dump it off to a cutter instead of shooting fooled everybody in the building like the dude is just saving this team season night after night after night. Did you see him uh turn
1: around Macau Bridges on that one and just put that baseline floater up? It was yes, it, it had, that was me, beautiful. had me
2: shivering. Yeah. That was beautiful. Now, one of the elements from this game, a playoff hero opposite him, campaign who obviously was so magnificent in game 2, we did not see in the second half of this one as he was out with injury. What is the significance of his possible absence going forward to you? How much does this Suns team need campaign? Obviously, CP is back now, but nevertheless, he is pretty crucial as that secondary creator for them, it seems. I
1: think it's a pretty big loss, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, they said it was an ankle injury. Um, I, the only update we have right now is that he will he would you know miss the rest of this game. I think it's a pretty big loss. I mean, Campaign has been, I hate saying this, bro, but he he is fun to watch. The way he slithers around guys, around Zubach, like at the bucket, the way he explodes past guys out of the pick and roll, Campaign's a fun dude to watch. And he's also, he's one of the valuable pieces on any playoff team in the sense that he's one of those good tendency breakers. And when you need a bucket, when the Suns offense goes cold, he can just go out there and command and get you one. And I think we saw that loss, not saying that you know, Chris Paul wasn't he didn't play exceptionally well, but campaign would have been a really valuable piece when Chris isn't knocking down those shots to just have there on the floor and to go out there and get you a bucket. If I don't think the Suns are screwed if campaign is out. I think they still win this series if Chris Paul is healthy, but yeah, it's a it's a nice size loss for this team because
2: he can go out there and get you a bucket at any time. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, this is not necessarily going to break this series for them, but I do think that this is the kind of game in which he could have salvaged some stuff because he can come in for a stretch and command the game. And if it's not CP or book creating with campaign out of the picture, you know, occasionally you'll get Macau drift into a mid-range pull-up, but he doesn't have the playmaking there and he's not going to do it possession after possession for a five-minute stretch of the game. So Again, I don't think you were going to survive Book and CP going a combined 10 of 40, no matter what, but Cam could have maybe righted the ship a little bit in this one, and I do think that's a painful loss, and I don't know why you said it was frustrating to say that he's been such a joy to watch, because of course he has been. He's a wonderful, wonderful basketball player, and so I won't take any questioning of campaign's greatness. All right, I want to touch on another key matchup that I think was really on display in this one. And we highlighted it early in this series because I think it was pretty clearly pivotal from the jump. And that was really, how are the Clippers going to handle DeAndre Ayton? And in this one, we saw basically Zubats play the majority of the minutes matched up along with him and play a really good game, by far his best game of the playoffs thus far. And we had debated, do you play Boogie more? Do you try to go small as tough as that may be with Ayton opposite you because of how he can punish you for attempting that? It seems like maybe they found the answer in Zubats. What did you make of his performance in this game, and what does that mean going forward in this series? I mean, I'm skeptical just because, I don't know, we've seen
1: Zubats drift away from being effective on the floor sometimes. He's been inconsistent, but tonight he was really effective, and if he plays like he did tonight the rest of this series, yeah, I'm putting him out there every minute DeAndre Ayton is out there on the floor. He just makes life hard on him. He's a— Guy who's going to help take away and make life hard on those uh, short rolls on just contesting shots at the rim. On D-Book when he gets into the lane, he's just a longer, taller guy and can get out closer to contend those shots. He made life hard on D-Book and CP3 tonight when they tried to put up those shots in the lane. Um, And off the roll, dude, because I'll give Paul George his credit, man, Mm -hmm. uh, tonight especially. He was dragging so many defenders uh, when he got into the lane, he opened up a lot of stuff for Zubach and Zubach was going up strong with it. Um, I don't know, man. Maybe this is, you know, correlation, or uh, this is, uh, you know, it isn't correlation, but causation. Uh, I would play Zubach the rest of this series, but I also think that CP3 and D-Book going cold is a big reason why the Clips won tonight, not necessarily Zubac's performance, but... I don't know. You got to make life hard on DeAndre Ayton on the glass because winning the Mm -hmm. rebounding battle was so hard. I say keep putting him out there, even though I don't think he was the most important uh, reason why the Clippers won tonight.
2: Yeah, I agree on most fronts there. I think that it helps you to have a body of that size, an imposing physical presence who can battle with Ayton on both ends. And I thought that tonight he did his job phenomenally well. I mean, he was just rolling hard to the bucket and he was finding soft spots in that painted area. And he didn't actually finish all that many shots, but he got to the line a bunch, which is as effective, if not more so, because he converts a really high percentage of, of those opportunities. So he did his job. I think he is the answer, and it's an interesting contrast to what we saw in the first couple series because in those matchups where it was so advantageous for the Clippers to go small and to just try to drag out those defensive bigs to the perimeter as much as possible and to say, okay... We're going to match up our strength to your weakness, play our five best guys, and we're going to win that way. In those two series, or actually just ahead of this game, the Clippers had been 24 points per 100 worse in the playoffs with Zubats on the floor. And I think that number is going to continue to change and improve for him throughout this series because I just think they kind of need him. And maybe Boogie can play in some of those spots, but Boogie's just a sketchy proposition. He brings you the shooting. Does he really do anything else better than Zubats at this point? No, and I think there's downsides with him, with the ego, with you know just deciding that certain stretches of the game, certain possessions are him, with the foul tendencies, with the volatility personality-wise. Like I would just prefer Zubats, and I didn't think that was going to be the case coming into the series, but I think now he has proven that that is the answer here, but he still hasn't been able to stop the guy opposite him, and DeAndre Ayton, who has had a phenomenal last two games is having yet another phenomenal series and obviously has had such a fundamental change in his game to where he's more aggressive than ever before, he's taking smarter shots than ever before. We've seen this trend throughout these entire playoffs. It's been refreshing, encouraging and really phenomenal. But what's been wild to me is even in these last couple games, we've seen the return the turnarounds The fadeaways return a little bit, and he's even knocking those shots down. Like, DeAndre Ayton is just unequivocally playing the best basketball of his life, and again, maybe Zubats is your best counter for him, but you're not taking him away on either end. I think he's going to walk into 18 and 10 pretty much every time out in this series, but also, I don't think that he's necessarily changing the game defensively, and that is obviously because of how reliant the Clippers normally are on that perimeter shot making, and so that is an area in which arguably... They are surviving, if not winning, that matchup. All right, what are some other impressions, some other things that have stood out to you through these three games? I think the biggest thing uh, for the rest of this series is something I touched on earlier.
1: Um, I think guys, like, I think the co-stars here on the Suns, and, I mean, I think this applies even for the Clippers, too. I just don't think you can be hesitant with your shot in these series. Uh, The biggest thing to me in the Suns' offense, man, so many guys just put up the threes. Just take them. Like, don't – they try to – the lane gets jammed so quick with with all these bodies, and I just – I fundamentally think that when Crowder, when Cam Johnson – Crowder hit a big three at the end of this game, too. um, He was really impressive, but just guys like Cam Johnson, they need to – They need to take their shots, and especially against the Clippers when that is primarily where they get their offense, when you can cut into big leads. And they were down in this game, and that's what made me scratch my head so much. You're down double digits already. Why are you even driving in? Try to take the three. Shoot yourself back into this game. And they got close CP, then missed some shots. But I just think the guys have got to pull the trigger when they get those looks. Again, and that's a part into – Zubac's impact on this game, he was making life hard for them when they got in there, forcing them to pass out, and I don't know, the Suns had so many fast-break possessions where they would end up kicking back out the CP at the top of the key when they had numbers, and then it just turns back into a 5-on-5 five five possession. You've just lost 10 seconds off the shot clock, and you didn't score when you had numbers. It's The Suns cannot afford to hesitate, um, and again, I mean, if D-Book and CP3 shoot better, but these other guys could have shot themselves back
2: into this game, even with a cold night from those guys. I agree. I thought that there were a couple possessions where you could just feel that the ball swung around the perimeter a couple too many times, and there was a look, and a guy just hesitated for a moment. And I think that that partly includes Book and CP, because what's interesting is, obviously both those guys are good three-point shooters, but neither of them preferred as a primary weapon. And so sometimes they'll get it off the catch And they'll try to dribble in and get that mid-range pull-up or a shot that they consider to be a little more of their bread and butter, and you just can't do that. You just got to pull it if you get the open look. And they both took seven threes today, so it's not like that's a glaring absence of three-point attempts, but we can see them fall into that at times, and uh, still, when you're taking 19 and 21 shots, respectively, it's not like seven is a huge portion of those, and I thought that they had a couple looks, particularly book that I can think of, that maybe he passed up on where... If he just knocks down that open three, that's an easy shot for him that he can make a very good percentage of the time. And I do want to say a guy that's
1: growing on me in uh, as a foothold just in this offense, man. Mikhail Bridges is pretty good at making tough shots, man. He mm-hmm. got a mismatch uh, a few times on Reggie, on Pat Bev, and uh, wasn't shying away, getting into the elbow, getting to the hash marks, and just putting in a. I mean, it, it's easy, he jab step right back out and he's putting it up and there's no way that the guard can contest him. Uh, Bridges is pretty good at taking tough shots and I think, uh, I don't know, in these late moments, again, when CP is going cold, do it yourself, Macau. go ahead and get yourself a shot because I trust him as a shot creator now, man, and I think, I don't know, he could prove really valuable, especially if they get to the finals um, late moments. He's pretty good at getting his own shot off.
2: Yeah, he really added that to his game this year and Is just a guy who I want on my team every single day of the week because he knows when to pick his spots with that, but he's never going to force the issue multiple times in a game. Other than that, it's going to be feeding off of the shots that are created for him. Cutting, knocking down open jumpers, dedicating himself on the defensive end, but you're right. He has it in his bag and can continue to expand that part of his game potentially. You know who doesn't though? Torrey Craig. Troy Craig took four <laughs> shots today, two of them were inexcusably bad, where I'm like yelling at the TV, what are you doing, like reckless straight line drives, and then just I guess I'll throw up kind of a floater, like Tori, I like you man, you're a good basketball player, no question, to be acquired for cash considerations, one of the brilliant moves of James Jones's tenure, one of many, like he can play big playoff minutes when he is only shooting open threes. And even then, you know, he's spotty there, but those are still solid shots. When he says, all right, this is a Torrey Craig possession, I want to gouge my eyeballs out, and I will not tolerate any more of that.
1: And, bro, there was one pass to the left corner where Torrey Craig is wide open, and I'm just, put it up, Torrey, please. Mm -hmm. Pump fake, drives baseline, Zubach says, get that mess out of here, Clippers fast break, PG dunk. Thanks, Torrey. Yeah. Um... While we are showing love uh, to the Suns, I do want to give a shout-out. I know I bagged on Cam Johnson for being a little hesitant, though. Um, Great cutting all game long as he's been all season, too. But, dude, a nice fast-break dime there uh, as well, man. He's a a sneaky decision-maker. But uh, I just love the Suns, bro.
2: This is the magic of the Suns, man. And this is why they always justified having faith in them as a contender because this was never a two-man show. And sure, they're very reliant on their two best players. We saw that today. When those guys aren't going, the team can only go so far. But so many guys who can step up in a given game. So many guys who can step up in multiple ways where it's not just being a good catch and shooter. Guys who can create their own shots, who can create who can affect the game defensively, who can make good decisions. And we have seen those guys step up intermittently, each of them sort of taking their turns throughout these playoffs. So that is always going to be something that makes the Suns go. Obviously, those guys were pretty fine today. I mean, not necessarily exceptional, especially when Cam goes out after four minutes. But the rest of the Suns shot 50% from the field. Like, this was just about CP and Book struggling. Let's talk about the star opposite them, who didn't have his most efficient night, but still had a very pronounced impact on this game, really in multiple phases, PG, PG, putting up 27-15-8, even though it's on 9-of-26 shooting. What have you made of his performance thus far in this series? Because obviously Game 2 for him was uh, filled with very high highs, very low lows, but sort of where do you stand on his performance and how good he's been thus far?
1: It's so damn impressive. Um, I, I've been so skeptical of him this entire time, and Paul George continuously proves me wrong. The biggest thing is just the playmaking, just – every possession down the burden of having to handle out of the pick and roll make a decision drive to the bucket do it and Paul is he's accepting it he's he's loving the challenge and um he's gotten a lot of help from uh you know his teammates knocking down shots from Zubach rolling to the rack but I never thought that I'd see Paul George be this effective at playmaking and it's uh Mm It's just amazing to watch. I didn't think he had his best shooting night tonight. He wasn't really super dominant. He put up some bricks, a lot of tough shots. Uh, the Suns were making life hard on him, and, uh, hard on him as usual. And I want to give him his credit too, man. Um, to this Clippers defense, I'll let you. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on Paul George's game uh, offensively as well. But um, they've trusted, like you mentioned earlier, a lot with Terrence Mann taking on D. Book, uh, allowing Paul George to play off. And uh, it's worked a lot, but Paul has been great defensively uh, on that side of the ball. Um, I I, I want to hear your thoughts on PG, and I also want to know,
2: um, do you think the Clippers can do this uh, without Kawhi? So I completely agree with you in highlighting the playmaking as the most impressive thing because he hasn't shot well from the floor in this series. He's under 39% and had a couple of really big shots in that game, too. Big-time clutch shots. First that transition layup and then that mid-range pull-up. And unfortunately, it's all washed away by the fact that he remarkably missed two free throws as if he was just begging to have everybody raining insults down on him for the next couple of games. But he bounced back admirably today, and it's just crazy to me how much putting the ball in somebody's hands can turn them into an effective playmaker. And the Clippers did it by force this year. They did it by just saying, PG, Kawhi, you are our point guards. Go run, pick, and roll. Go isolate and kick to shooters all day long. Go find Zubats off the roll. And it really worked. And this is such an established pattern that to me, particularly if you have any young guy, just make him your primary ball handler. If you have no incentive to win, like, we want to see Ant. Handling as much as possible, in my opinion. Just refine those playmaking instincts because that is what levels up your ceiling. And we see it with Donnie, we see it with Book, we see it with PG, Kawhi, all these wings who never had that as a primary arsenal in their game initially can become perfectly good playmakers and can be real playoff offensive engines. And that's just impressive stuff from PG right now.
1: I think the guy opposite PG in this series is the guy that you should take that away from. Like, People, I, I felt so bad for D. Book for the longest time, mm-hmm. uh, having no one else in that offense to help him carry this load. But it's why he is so damn good now, yeah. And why he's the best player on the Suns because he had to do that because he had to develop mm. those playmaking tools. It's, I completely agree. That's why. Yeah. uh That's why the Pelicans are going to put Z- uh, the ball in Zion's hands. It's why. It's what you should do. It'll, if they can do it, if they can withstand, if they can add that tool to their toolkit, they will be the they'll
2: be the beneficiary long-term and you'll have a star that you can build around. All right, so now I'll answer the second part of your question. Do I think the Clippers can do this? I do not. I think that they are a machine to a certain extent that will not stop if one piece is missing. I think that can be said about Kawhi. I think that could be said about PG if Kawhi were still out there because when guys are shooting like this and when Reggie Jackson is stepping up as that second guy they can sustain a lot of their offensive value. And again, they haven't been insane shooting in this series. I mean, they're still 39%, making 15 a game because they did have a pretty big game one there. But you expect even better than that from them because this is one of the greatest shooting teams ever. That's the standard. But I just think when it comes to real big time situations, I am going to lean on the Suns to take out the close victories because I just think they have the two big-time shot makers in this series, and I think that they also have difference makers up and down this roster. I think they're better defensively, but I will say the Clippers are not going to go away, and we have seen that time and again throughout these playoffs, and it's not just a matter of self-belief. It's a matter of (laughs) they can shoot themselves back into a game, into a series at a moment's notice, and that makes them a threat, but are you at the point where you're legitimately thinking the Clippers are like near toss-up status in this series? I would say in the scenario that you laid
1: out where it's close game, late game scenarios, I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, I lean D book CP three, but I think I trust Paul George and Reggie Jackson a lot in close, in close late games, man. Um, I trust them to go out there and get a lot of buckets. And I mean, yeah, like we've been critical that the Clippers have been formulaic this entire time, but like, I don't know, man. It plays into their hands, in my opinion, sometimes. Like, they are just good at—they don't go cold like the Suns' offense does Mm -hmm. in stretches, and that's a part of this equation that I want to ask you as a follow-up question. So you don't think that the Clippers can force the Suns' offense to go cold repeatedly and consistently enough like they did tonight to win this series?
2: Not really. Again, they played a really good defensive game, but the Suns also just did not knock down shots in any phase— they were ten of thirty-two from deep, and their two best players. I'll say it one more time: were ten of forty. That to me is not a replicable formula. So uh, I don't think that you can take PG or not PG, CP or book away, because again, they live on making tough shots, and if they get that sliver of space in the mid-range, they will knock it down much more often than not. So I'm not really all that concerned about either of their off nights because. This happens sometimes. It's unfortunate for them that they overlapped here, but maybe they'll both come back stronger in game four. I have to say, not fond of Book's mask choice, personally. Should have gone with a black mask. They look way cooler. I don't like the clear mask at all. I think he looks a little bit scary. Maybe that's affecting him because guess what? This is one of the swaggiest players in the league. He loses a little bit of that coldness. Guys start looking at him and thinking, you kind of look ridiculous, Book. Maybe he loses an edge. Of course, I don't really believe that, but he did struggle, and he has struggled since the nose injury, no question. I mean, dude, not only did he like <laughs> Did he look scary, like um like he looks swole up, man. Bad. Oh. Like his yeah. face looked <laughs> huge. No, it's hilarious. I was noticing that even during game two, right after it happened. Like, he is definitely working with a very broken nose right now. So are you leaning Clippers? Is that what this has come down to, or are you still going Suns and seven? I mean, I'm not leaning Clippers. I just think this is a lot closer
1: than I initially expected. I don't know, man. Like I I was really impressed with the Clippers' defensive effort tonight, and while I don't think they can consistently throw off CP and D-Book, if Zubach is contesting shots in the lane like he was tonight, if Terrence Mann is giving a lot of effort on the glass, if he's Forcing D D-bo- Book off of his spots, if Pat Bev and Rondo were having an impact on this game defensively. I think every game is close. And I think when the Clippers, yes, they're formulaic, when they can create late shots, when they have a, if their shooters are going, if Paul George and Reggie Jackson are knocking down tough shots, yes, I, I do think it's a toss up. I think every game is a toss up. I think every game is close. I'm still going Phoenix in seven, but. I don't know, man. I think the Clippers are going to be in every
2: single game in this series as as we continue. I think it's going to be a battle too, man. But that's kind of been my feeling throughout. I did not expect the Clippers to be rolled over because I don't know how you could have watched those last two games against Utah and think, oh yeah, this team is done without Kawhi. Because they clearly were not and are not and are going to continue to pose a threat. I wouldn't be shocked if it went seven. I would be pretty surprised if they won it, though. To me, the Suns are the most complete team here with the two guys who I trust the most at the top of it all and one off night for them doesn't change that but of course they could very easily be down 2-1 in this series they could very easily be down 2-1 if Paul George doesn't miss both free throws if that ball that ends up remaining Suns ball when you know it was off of whoever and it could have been off of Aiden theoretically if they don't get the ball back there like they are working with very narrow margins here. And we didn't get to touch on that at all because it feels almost a little bit dated now because it was a few days ago and we just saw game three. But what a masterstroke from Monty uh, to use Book as the decoy there. I mean, also great screen by Book, but like just masterful stuff, man. Really, really impressive to close that game out like that. But
1: also... Just like Clippers mishaps on that final play. Like, yeah, I know we've all bagged on Cousins, but you've got to be in the way of that pass. Supac also cannot take that route to the hoop. He almost contested that, but you've got to be on the low side of that screen.
2: Well, and I think that the biggest thing is you are never going to expect a lob necessarily in a situation like that, but from where they were inbounding, that's such a tough shot if you do anything other than a lob. And like, if anyone's going to turn and knock down a tough, 15 footer in 0.9 seconds it's Devin Booker but it's still a really tough shot and I was amazed by how many of the Clippers on the court didn't seem to know that there's no offensive basket interference off of an inbound like that was crazy to me PG Rondo all those guys instinctively were like oh he's over the cylinder well you can't be so I thought that was great from the Suns and the Clippers almost stole one there but the Suns stole it right back and obviously that's huge for how this series is going to continue to play out.
1: I also want to go on record here, dude. Jay Crowder is the inbound pass god. Yeah. yeah. Now he made a Not couple of pass,
2: passes in that game.
1: The um, you remember that full court uh like full court throw in from a couple years ago when he was with Boston against Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, if I've got an inbound
2: pass late, I want Jay Crowder throwing it for the win. Yeah, for good reason. All right, so we agree this is going to be a battle. I think that. A lot of Clippers have showed up and proven their mettle in this series. Pat Bev was getting DNPs against the Mavs, and uh, it seemed like it made sense, and now here he is back out there and is battling and is knocking down shots on the offensive end. Terrence Mann, obviously. You don't have to convince me about how good he is. But, like, both these teams have real depth, a bunch of guys who they can trust, to step up in those big moments. And I think that that's why they're the last two standing here, even with all of the injuries and weirdness that they've both dealt with. So I'm going to stick with my initial prediction of sons and six. To me, there seems to be no indication that Kawhi is coming back. Very strange. Also that he was watching up in a box instead of with his team. Like that's just something that I could only imagine Kawhi doing to be so detached, so cold, so terminator esque That was very weird. But with that, let's talk about the other series because We've seen three games of Suns Clippers, have a little bit more to work with there. We've only seen one game of Hawks-Bucks, but it was a very exciting one and ends up being an Atlanta win. Now, you and I both picked Hawks and seven. We are, I'm sure, in the minority there, but if you believe in the Hawks, you believe in the Hawks, and if you're skeptical of the Bucks, you're skeptical of the Bucks, and that's kind of why I ended up going with the team I just trust more there, but what are some of your first impressions from that one?
1: I think game one exhibited a lot of the things that we've been saying all year long. Um, first off, uh, the thing that you did to wrap up our uh, like Hawks-Bucks preview on last show, just that, yeah, we trust Trey Young more than Giannis, and for good reason. I mean, Trey's a better offensive engine, plain and simple, and in big games and playoff games, like— this game was neck and neck all the way, and it's not like they were really slowing the Bucks down from what they traditionally did. Giannis was getting his fast-break points. Uh, Drew Holiday did a great job of knocking down perimeter shots, but Trey Young's effing unstoppable, and when you continuously mm-hmm. drop every possession down and you give Trey that floater and you're not pressing him on deep three-pointers and you're just giving him those shots, you're begging Trey to <laughs> bend you over and spank you. Win that game, like you are just asking him to just take the win. I thought the Bucks. I think the Bucks have to change how they play defense. Um, I also think Chris Middleton, uh, another thing, uh, Chris Middleton, the best closer on this team, and he's a damn good one. He has got the tools and the skill set to be a great closer. And just sometimes he goes cold. O of four in the fourth quarter, he misses two big threes late. He's O of nine from deep on the game. Chris Middleton can't go cold like that, and that is something that I would say is a redeeming quality of this game. Bucks were in it. If Chris Middleton doesn't go that ice cold from deep, they probably win this game. Um, but I think the Bucks just have to change up how they play defense. So they're gonna get torched by Trey Young in this series. And I still, um, <laughs> I still want Trey over Giannis any day, every game. <laughs> Anytime we're playing ball. Give me
2: Trey. Well, I think that the answer to Trey just dissecting them, dropping Book out of the pick and roll, as was very foreseeable, is Giannis at the five. I thought Giannis at the five minutes were pretty deadly, and I just think that when we see Giannis be a big man, we see him at his best. There was a stretch in that second half where they are just running Giannis as the role man, and he is slipping and catching these lobs effortlessly, and it's just unstoppable. And if he is going to struggle out of isolation yet again, which I kind of expect. I mean, he put up his numbers in this game, but you better believe that. They are going to do exactly what the Nets did with Blake Griffin, with Clint Capella, and they will do it effectively. The Hawks in this series just use Giannis as a role, man, more and more and more. And you mentioned Middleton not knocking down a couple shots. He had a couple good looks, had that one mid-range pull-up that was in and out with a couple minutes to go. And then, even on that game-tying effort, that was a scary good look. If you're Atlanta, you do not want to see Chris Middleton taking that shot in the final moments. And... This is obviously always the thing with him. It's the skill set is that of a big-time clutch shot maker. The resume is not. His clutch stats have been abysmal for several years now. I've read them off before. I'm not going to do it again because I've done it before. But it's an established pattern through and through regular season and playoffs. But when you look at how this game was closing, it just seemed like the Bucks had the tools to pull it out because they figured out how to use Giannis most effectively. Again, when he was rolling to the bucket— He was unstoppable, and they stopped going to it down the stretch. And yeah, that's part of how basketball works: is you come more isolation heavy, you rely on your tough shot makers and all that. But also, you don't have to do that with four minutes left. I mean, until the last couple possessions, I would have been hammering Giannis as the role man. And then, if you look at things that were going wrong for the Hawks, Trey, as remarkable as he was for this the duration of this game, pretty much with the 48 and 11, almost pissed it all away by taking six. Puff, pull-up threes in that fourth quarter, missing every single one of them. And this is what we always say, Logan. As counterintuitive as it may sound to some people, when you make Trey Young a jump shooter, and when I say jump shooter, I mean primarily three-point shooter. You consider the floater a jump shot, you're kind of weird, but that is obviously always in his bag. But when he stops getting into that painted area, you're limiting his playmaking impact, and you are really leaving it up to a crapshoot. Like, he's a 34% three-point shooter. So, it's just a gamble for him every time out, and it was a gamble that paid off in the first half when he showed some remarkable perimeter shot making, but did not in that fourth quarter. So, the Bucks had that going for them, and because I assume Bogey was off and continues to seem to be hampered by an injury and by being in his own head, Solomon Hill was closing, and not only was he closing, he did a couple of boneheaded Tory Craig plus things in this game and the Bucks still couldn't find a way to win it and I don't know if I can quantify it like part of it was it just felt like the Hawks were on every loose ball and yeah a couple shots didn't fall for the Bucks down the stretch in this one but man they had the tools to win this one and Atlanta just grinded out another tough win because that's what they do time and again man a number of guys step up and they just find a way to win so I don't know do you think that this is promising for Milwaukee that they were able to have an off shooting night for Middleton and off shooting night as a team, although the Hawks had an off shooting night from deep as well and that they were still this close. Or do you think it's a sign of Atlanta being the stronger team and the team that you trust more as, you know, we talked about earlier.
1: Both. Um, I think it, I think it is promising for the bucks and I think it's, I love it. I think we're going to get two really competitive series here, Mm -hmm. um, in the playoffs. I love it. I think both these series go seven. Um, I don't know, I, I would be pretty uh I'd be pretty energetic if I'm both teams. Um also I want to touch on bruh. I hate Solomon Hill minutes, man. Especially oh when they especially when they put him on Giannis, bruh. And it's just like go ahead, man. Give the Bucks two points. Like he's getting around Solomon. He is dogging that man. Put John Collins or Clint Capella on him, please. Mm-hmm. There are a few uh there's a few more really good things I, I like about uh, Atlanta um, uh, we were really skeptical about John Collins, um, as, as just like being a competent player on a like, on like a winning player on a good team. And he's dispelled a lot of things. He is such a good role, man, bro. That lob that Trey threw, whew, mm-hmm. that's the one you see in a, that's a video game lob to John Collins. He hit a big three late. That was the only one he hit, but it's something that John Collins mentioned after the game that I think is so captivating about this team Man, everybody plays their role. They know what they're here to do. They all do it so well. Like in everybody works hard. Like there's so many talented difference makers on this team that I just don't think are there in Milwaukee. Herter mm-hmm. is so good at making tough shots. Capella, a dominant rim protector who's going to give you everything he's got on the glass. Collins, a dominant lob threat. Um, I'm going to let you take back over, Carson, here, but I do want to bag on uh, the guy that I crap on every time we bring up Atlanta. Damn, dude, Danilo Gallinari. Makes me want to, like, take off my shoe and just throw it through the TV sometimes, <laughs> bro. Like, in that first quarter, the he airballs, and, uh, bro, the one where he is posting up uh, near the elbow and he just throws the ball out of bounds over his head, like... <sighs> Gallinari is so captivating, bro. He makes so many. Yes, he makes tough shots. mm -hmm. But damn,
2: dude, he makes some bad decisions sometimes. Yeah, he's made big shots, though. That's the thing with Gallo is every shot looks like a tough one. If he misses, it's just inherently frustrating. If he makes it, you go, hey, man, that's Gallo. You know, he has the right to take those shots. But he doesn't have the right to take them anymore when he misses, it feels like. I want to stick with the John Collins point for a second here because he's playing the best basketball of his life right now. And this was a fantastic game for him, 23-15, and 15, fighting on the glass yet again. I praised him last series for how phenomenal he was, not just knocking down shots and producing offensively, but again, fighting on the glass, because obviously we know, fabled second jump, but he also just is scrapping there and seems to take pride in his ability to impact the game in that way, and I think that this has been a massive redemption arc for him, because I had so many questions about John Collins, and I think so many of them originated from him being forced to try to be a five defensively for half the game, and the resolution they have found where because of how Trey Young plays basketball to where the guy must throw twice as many lobs as anyone else because every other possession, it's lob or floater. He's getting to that bread and butter spot every single time, and those are his two options. He and Clint can both exist as massive lob threats while you get his value as a skilled post-scorer, as a guy who can stretch the floor. And defensively, dude, John Collins, last year I had some questions about him guarding in space. In these playoffs, to me, he has been perfectly solid defensively. I have no complaints. We saw him play admirably for stretches on Julius Randle. We saw him uh, compete in stretches against Giannis when needed, like, just, he has never been exposed throughout these entire playoffs, and he's in a great situation. I do think to a certain extent, he is replaceable in Atlanta because his offense is created by Trey Young. Like If you have a guy who can roll to the bucket and knock down shots, then you have a guy who Trey Young will make look really, really good, but John Collins is also a really skilled player offensively, so I think they could lose him and not lose a ton as a team, but he also might be playing as their second best guy right now. And yeah, they have, again, six, seven guys who you really trust. And when DeAndre Hunter's out there, throw another guy out of that mix. So they can survive absences and shortcomings from a lot of key guys. But John Collins has been great. This is the best he's ever played. And if he can keep it up, he's going to keep impacting this game in multiple ways. And he's been very, very impressive. That's interesting. Um,
1: like, who do you think... When they end up having to pay guys and, you know, decide who stays and who goes,
2: like, do you think John Collins, is he the, is he the odd man out? I think it depends on what his expectations are. To me, if you're paying him less than $20 million a year, that's perfectly doable because I think that his skill set is not all that easy to find, and he's really damn good at it. Like, this kind of athleticism, shooting, heart that I think he has shown, that's a guy who you want on your team, no question. The chemistry he has established with Trey – But if he climbs much higher than that, I think you kind of need to look around and say Trey Young is our offensive engine. Trey Young makes this machine go. All these guys are amplified by playing with Trey Young, and maybe it's worth cutting costs. And I don't know. I think peak DeAndre Hunter can be more valuable because of what he does defensively. I think Clint is still more valuable right now in the majority of matchups because of his monstrous impact defensively and so maybe he does have to be that odd man out but again if the price is reasonable I think you absolutely want to retain him whereas previously I might have been a toss-up on even if I wanted him on the team long term
1: I agree Hunter can be more impactful uh at his peak for sure but oh I'm sure I mean, you do <laughs> hey, bro. Uh, do you w- would you explore like moving on from Gallo if that meant that you could keep uh John Collins oh,
2: I would love to move on from Gallo's contract. Yeah, I think that absolutely John Collins is a better, more valuable player right now, but I guess maybe because Gallo's contract isn't crazy long, you can get somebody to take it, but I don't know who's going to want to pay him two years, $42 million after this season. But you know what? He's doing a job for you. He's doing it well enough, and I don't think that roster building long-term is of the utmost concern for the Hawks right now. I want to talk to you about the guy who stood out as being the most disappointing for Atlanta in this game, clearly above everybody else who has struggled throughout these playoffs despite being so spectacular down the stretch in the regular season. We both said we thought that bogey had to be better in this series for the Hawks to win. He was not better in game one. They still found a way to do it, but what do you make of what we've seen from him and what do we need to see from him going forward for Atlanta to get this done?
1: I Like I've touched on, uh, in the past I'm you've got to get something out of bogey or out of Lou Williams like a completely uncharacteristic uh in you know, a Hawks win uh Lou goes one of five bogey goes one of six like you said and it's I don't know it's weird because I mean they have cut down on his touches because it's the playoffs and because Trey's a much more valuable piece I want the ball in his hands more of the time but bogey's passive man he's mm-hmm. scared like it's fast breaks he's given the rock up he doesn't want to make decisions I I think it's just as much as he's in his own head as it is a physical injury and I agree in basketball bruh, like it's it's tough it's tough when you see guys go through that because it's just gonna take him getting more confident in himself in his shot and it has been like this all playoffs long traditionally when you see guys get like this uh like we've seen from Paul George in the past. like When guys get in their own head, it's tough to get out of it. I I think they need him. I think if we continue seeing... The, I think that is the biggest... I think that's the scariest thing for the Atlanta Hawks. Is if Bogey continues uh-huh. to play like this. Because there's going to come a time when... Uh, at Herter goes cold. Gallo goes cold. Lou Will goes cold. And you need Bogey in a big spot. If Bogey plays like this the
2: rest of the series, I would probably lean Milwaukee. Honestly. And I think that that's scary because I don't know what bogey we are going to get. And I completely agree with you because these struggles pre-existed the right knee soreness that really became prevalent late in that last series. And I think there's a pretty telling number. Bogey was a 44% three-point shooter this regular season. He's a 29.8% three-point shooter in the playoffs right now. His game is not built on explosion. It is built on change of pace, mid-range jump shooting, floaters, Three-point shooting, obviously, is a massive part of it. Good decision-making as a passer. Things that aren't really affected by an injury nearly as much as most other players are. And I just think he is getting open shots. Not necessarily creating for himself right now. Part of that, you can say, is physical. But off the catch, man. And they are just off every single time. Like, I don't have confidence in a guy who I normally am such a believer in to make shots. And he had a stretch like this to begin this season where things just weren't flowing for him. Maybe he was being misutilized a bit, should have had the ball in his hands a little more, but he was not making shots. And then, as I always say, last 20-something games of the season, he averages 22 a game on 50% from the field, 49% from three, runs the joint in the six games that Trey Young is out of the picture, and the Hawks go 5-1. and one. That guy would be really nice to see right now. All right? The Hawks have enough weapons to where they can survive it. And when Trey puts up 48... They can survive a lot. And when Kevin Herter puts up 27 in a Game 7, you know what? Maybe they can pull it off in those situations. But they need their second best player right now. And so, if he just becomes another cog in this machine, and if he isn't even a good cog in in that machine, like if he is just going to shoot 25% from three in this series, obviously it becomes measurably harder for them. Maybe they can still do it because of Trey and because you know, Red Velvet's not going to fear the moment. Gallo's not going to fear the moment, but it gets a lot scarier. And that is just concerning to me because I don't know when we see him flip that switch. Like maybe he just needs a hot quarter and then he'll be much closer to himself, but it's got to come sooner rather than later. Cause even against New York, he wasn't very good. He had a couple of good games, but I still was disappointed with him. And then Philly was even rougher. And now game one of this was probably the roughest of it all. This might be my most radical question uh, I've ever asked on this
1: show. I mean, if Bogey continues to struggle, should we give Tony Snell minutes?
2: Whoa. What is going on with Tony Snell? Why is he not playing at all? Because I've been wondering that. Yeah, I don't... I mean, like,
1: Tony was awesome in the regular season. He was knocking down threes, playing hard defense. I don't know why he's not getting PT
2: now. Dude, like, if the proposition is Solomon Hill or Tony Snell... Yeah, I get that Solomon is a little bigger, a little tougher defensively, but he also sucks, all right? He's also (laughs) terrible. Did you ever consider that, Nate, that he sucks and is bad at basketball? So give me the guy who can shoot 57% from three. Not in place of Bogey, though. Until Bogey cannot move, until he has missed 100 straight shots, I am playing him because the only way you have the opportunity to get back on that horse is by playing minutes and by taking shots. And that, to me, is the only remedy here. I mean, getting physically better is one thing, but getting out of his own head is only going to come from seeing that ball go through the basket. So I think that that is a massive key. Anything else here? Any other first impressions that stand out to you right now? Um, I think, I mean, on the
1: Buck side, the only thing that I think I'd add is I just think uh, they've got to get more transition opportunities. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they got them. But uh, I just think they've got to get out on the break more for Giannis, just because that's where they get their best, quickest, most uh, effective offense from. Um, so I guess I stated my opinion on that. Do you are you in agreement with me though? Like if we don't get, if Bogey doesn't turn this around,
2: are you leaning bucks? I will never look you in the eyes and say I'm leaning bucks. I have too much <laughs> faith in Trey Young, and I will not give up on Bogey. As rough as it has been, I will not give up. I am going to die on this train. I should have died on this train with the Sixers. I wanted to pick the Hawks upset. I didn't have the gall. And this time I have the gall and I'm sticking to my guns. And game one, I think, was encouraging because they played well. I will say, this was scary for the Hawks because of what you saw Drew Holiday do. And obviously, I mean, his playmaking, defensive impact has been there throughout these playoffs. But he entered this game shooting under 25% from three started knocking down triples in this one, and they were kind of letting him have them, which I guess I understand, but I thought they could have closed out a little harder on some of those threes, and he made them pay a few times. He also missed a few, but he was getting into that mid-range area, getting downhill, and creating for himself and others at a really high level, supplementing what they wish they had had for Middleton. So I think that this was interesting because from Milwaukee, you got two really good games from two of three best guys, and you got a pretty bad game from one of your other three best guys in Chris Middleton, and that's kind of standard for them. Like, very rarely do you see all three of these guys guns a-blazing, seamless offense. Everything is, you know, just kicking seamlessly for them. If you did see that, they wouldn't have gone seven against the banged-up Nets, who had one legitimate offensive creator out there for the majority of the series. I think it's interesting that we saw a little more Bobby Portis. Personally, I like it. Give yourself a little bit more shooting, uh, some flexibility on the defensive end just as far as mobility, size, and I think that we're going to see more Giannis at the five. I don't think Brooke Lopez is needed in this series. I think you can do that cute rim protector stuff. That's fine. Guess what? I want a more dynamic vertical athlete in Giannis who can contest those lobs more effectively, who can switch on to Trey a thousand times more effectively, because taking away the restricted area... Doesn't matter when the other team's best player, the other team's maestro doesn't go in the restricted area. Who cares? That gig is up. The jig is up. And uh, I've seen enough. Brooke, you know, if he's knocking down a ton of shots, fine, you can play him for stretches. But I think the 20 minutes he got in game one was about where he should should sit going forward. Like, I don't want him playing the 31 minutes a game he played through these first couple series. You're nodding your head. Do you agree with that? Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, uh, we need more
1: Bobby Portis minutes. We need more Giannis at the five minutes. We need less Brooke Lopez. Yes, I'm. I'm all on board there. We also need less Pat Connaughton minutes. Like I know the hmm. Vincenzo's out, bruh, but I just hate Pat Connaughton, dude. That dude sucks. Hate? Why? Pat's just always whining about something out there, bruh, and he's missing his shots. He's
2: Pat stinks. I disagree. He does definitely complain a lot for a player of his status, but I think he's right some of the times. Like, <laughs> I don't know. There was the time where he got the eye laceration. Felt pretty bad for him then. I think Pat does his job well enough. Like, he's not a multifaceted difference maker, and that's what the Bucks are lacking. And that's what Dante could have been for them. Like, yes. look, I'm not going to give sympathy to the Bucks for getting bit by the injury bug. Because basically every other team, with the exception of the Suns, now that CP is himself again, have been bit harder. But they still lost their, maybe come playoff time, fourth best player, certainly a top five player. And that does matter for them. So I think that the keys that we touched on remain. The Hawks have more guys who we trust. They have the guy who we trust the most. And uh, there are things that will continue to crumble a little bit for the Bucs. I don't think that this game affirmed to me oh yeah, they're going to have seamless offense throughout the series. I think this was kind of like, okay, Giannis is going to have to find a way to you know get downhill, get to his spots. He can't settle like he did against the Nets. And he found more of a rhythm late in that series where he stopped taking as many bad shots. I don't think he really took many bad shots in this game one with the exception of that turnaround on Trey because every time he takes that shot, you are winning if you're the other team. I think that this is going to be a battle. I'm going to stick with my Hawks and Seven gut feeling Are you going to stay there with me? I'm sticking Hawks in seven, and I think you said it best.
1: Um, I like the Hawks rotation more. They have more offensive guys that I trust. That matters, so uh, yeah, I'm sticking with the Hawks.
2: And I think it would be kind of ludicrous if either of us changed our prediction after one game that the Hawks won on the road. So we're going to stick to our guns there. Let's briefly touch on just a couple other pieces of NBA news that have a transpired looks like Jason Kidd is going to be the head coach of the Mavs Logan endorsed by Rick Carlisle which is kind of weird I don't know why Rick Carlisle cares about who the Mavs head coach is going to be now but I don't think either of us are super enthused about Jason Kidd as a head coach and he's going to a dysfunctional situation with the most talented third-year guy we've maybe ever seen what are your thoughts there
1: yeah I there's a lot of question marks about his Bucks tenure um especially with the development of Giannis. like i I mean they won what 50 games one year with Jay Kidd at the helm and then they switched over to uh to bud like I don't know man I got a lot of questions about jason Kidd as a as a personality as a head basketball coach he just hasn't proven himself and
2: i I don't love it I would have liked Carlisle to stay here yeah. To me, the more relevant position is honestly the head of basketball operations, which they filled with a Nike guy whose name is escaping me. It's Nico something because this is going to be about building a roster. I mean, if you can mess up (laughs) this Mavs offense, if you can mess up (laughs) literally just saying, hey, Luca, run, pick and roll all game. We'll put shooters around you. Then Jason Kidd, you are a disgrace. I assume that this is about personality management understanding Luca on a personal level, understanding what it's like to be that star player. I don't know. That's the reason that I would imagine they're getting him in there. Maybe Luca likes him. But, like, I don't think he needs to be brilliant X's and O's wise, and I certainly do not expect him to be brilliant X's and O's wise. So, I don't think that's fully official yet, but it has been very strongly hinted at through reporting. The other story is what we saw in the lottery, where now we know that the Pistons are going to be picking first overall. We're not going to do a whole bunch of draft talk here, although it is going to sneak up on us after the playoffs. But any initial impressions on that? Anything you want to get off your chest about the Detroit franchise maybe being liberated here, having a little bit of reason for hope?
1: Oh, I mean, I think it saves basketball in Detroit. They are in a deep, Mm -hmm. dark hole. Um I feel so bad for Killian Hayes because this likely means that his time is up in Detroit because he's Mm. not going to be a starter here. This is going to be Kate's offense to run. Um, I think they're probably going to have to move on from him. Uh, I do want to say in uh, big lottery news, what a win for the Warriors. Man, the Timberwolves got
2: screwed. Yeah. A little unfortunate for the Warriors that they couldn't stay at six because... uh, I kind of feel like there's a drop-off between Scotty Barnes and some of the next group of guys who other people would reasonably take there. Like, if you're looking at my wacky big board, oh, sure, it's lock Kai Jones in there. I don't think he's reasonably going to be taken, though. Also makes no sense for the Warriors. Yeah, they definitely won here. The Raptors, man. whoo! Top four pick in Toronto. That's going to be fun. As far as Killian situation goes... I think it's going to be interesting because right now, far and away, his greatest asset is his passing. His scoring is underdeveloped. His pure shooting was not reliable. So if you slide him off ball, if you make him less of a true point guard, that's probably not great for his development. So maybe, again, if the shot is there reliably He and Cade can trade off possessions. Obviously, Cade will be priority number one, but maybe Killian can do some of that primary ball handling. Maybe when Cade is off the floor, Killian runs the bench unit and then can be a good spot-up shooter, secondary ball handler with that starting five. I'm not going to give up on it. I still like what we saw from Killian because that kind of passing does not just come through the door every day. And look, man, they have the foundations of a team that can be fun. You have your wings who you trust, who can play both ends, and... Sadiq and I guess Jeremy Grant he's not a long-term piece but he's good right now you have a center who I think is more than a starting caliber player here who has the potential to develop a reliable outside shot and Isaiah Stewart who we know is an imposing interior presence there's a lot to like in Detroit which is crazy because there's a lot to like basically everywhere in the NBA we'll do more draft stuff again once this wild playoff has concluded but that is where our focus is for now is there anything that you didn't get in about what we are seeing in either of these series right now, or have we covered it to the fullest extent? I need more Onyeka Okongwu moments,
1: uh, minutes, excuse me. Uh, Do you really? I mean, I'd like to
2: see some, you know, big O versus no, Giannis. I've been happy to see some Onyeka minutes at all, and I think that he honestly is a solid matchup for Giannis. Maybe Giannis can overpower him a little bit, But like he has the mobility and the size for the most part to hang with him. And we only saw three minutes in game one. We saw more Onyeka towards the end of that Philly series. So maybe we see him come out again. I would not be opposed. I was a big Onyeka guy in the draft and been a little disappointed by his rookie campaign. But he can play. He's not out of place. And that would be a big challenge for him. But maybe he's an answer in the non-capella minutes. I don't know. Maybe just a little bit. So with that, I will say this. Do not play Solomon Hill. Nate, if you do it, I love you. You're a great coach. But no more Solomon Hill. 10 minutes a game, 10, 12 minutes a game, and then say, you know what? It was a prank, actually. It was a joke. We don't need you to play anymore. We're going to get you off the court. I want the Hawks Suns finals. Legacies will be made early in careers, and I want to see it happen. Trey Young is beyond special. Trey, sorry I ever doubted you when you were a real young buck coming up in this league. You're wildly fun. Shimmying before you shoot is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life, and you're my favorite player in the entire NBA. Book, you didn't hear that. You're my favorite player in the NBA. Suns, love ya. Hawks, love ya. Bucks, Clippers, I can take it or leave it. I hope Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic had their ears closed for that last part. Guys, you know it was a prank. All right. Nobody will ever (laughs) touch my Denver duo.
1: I also want to say, you know, my mom's big takeaway from the uh, Hawks-Bucks game uh, was that uh, Trey Young is really cocky, and I told her, you know what, mom, when you do that, when you put up 48 and 11, you can be a little cocky, all right? You can do what you want. You can walk around like your you-know-what doesn't stink,
2: because it does Yeah, he's the best, man. He is unbelievably good for the sport, and, uh, It's been amazing to see this all happen. And we'll have some of the big picture discussions, I'm sure. But we're not there yet, because you know what? They're still grinding through these series, and we will be joining you in this journey as we see these legacies developed, as we see them unfold. If you want to hear some of the stuff that we have previously said, you can always stick around on our YouTube channel if you're watching here, see some of the video breakdown stuff that we do. I just made a video on the unexpected hero of these playoffs. In my opinion, it's been Reggie Jackson, so I'll spoil that. The video's about Reggie Jackson. You can find our full podcasts here. We post those on our YouTube channel. You can also find them in audio form on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your audio content. You can follow us on Twitter, at nerd underscore sesh, and on Instagram, at nerd sesh, and on TikTok, at nerd sesh, where Logan is pumping out some sweet, sweet content, because we know you guys just can't get enough of us, so go ahead and check us out on all those platforms. And with that, as always, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was nerd Zone.
0: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And